Hello everyone and welcome to ARBcast. I'm John Parker, Technical Director at the Arboricultural Association. In this episode, we will hear one of my favourite ever presentations from any Arboricultural Association amenity conference. It's Mike Raup with his 2017 talk entitled How Global Change Abets Insect Invasions, Case Studies of Beetles and Bugs from the US. As ever, the slides which go with Mike's presentation will be available on our website alongside this audio file should you want to take a look. Enjoy. Fantastic. Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank very much the organizing committee for having me back here. I figured last time that was it. Uh, but indeed, uh, you've made a mistake again. And here I am. So uh, I'm going to tell you a few bug stories from the other side of the pond today. Um, it's a fascinating world we live in right now. And uh, I think that, as the prince said, we have many, many challenges as the former speaker. So I'm going to relate to you some of our experience with biosecurity, with sustainability and resilience of our native forests and our built environments. Now, in my book, as I think about this, I think we face three major suites of factors that imperil the sustainability of our urban landscapes. Number one is invasive species. And in my book, I think we now face, or we now have proof, that we have a global economy. And what this translates into, I believe, is a global biota. So island or not, big continent or not, get over it. Uh, we now will have a global biota. Number two is climate change. This is another unfortunate truth I think we all face. And despite what uh, you may have heard, uh, here in the States we really do appreciate this, and I think those charged with protecting our environment understand what the risks and uh, challenges are there. And finally, I'll talk about urbanization and its effects on the ecological processes and services that would help to buffer otherwise pest outbreaks. So that's kind of the roadmap for where we go. So I'll start with a question. How many of you think the rate of invasion is increasing? By a show of hands, please. Pretty good. Okay. How many think it's not? All right. You got two. Uh, how many don't know? A few. Okay, I almost got everybody. Well, how many don't care then? <laughs> I'll stone that one. Okay. Well, you know, when I first started putting these talks together, I thought that I knew the answer. I thought it was straightforward. The rate is not changing. The rate is not changing. The big tipping point was back here in the 1860s, and that's when the rate changed from a very slow, gradual rate into the hockey stick, the exponential growth. What was the key factor here, folks? Is what? It was railways. It was the Industrial Revolution, where we could now take a ship, sail it across the ocean, and return back with plants in three days rather than three months. Okay, so this was the key factor. Now, that's not to say we're not getting more all the time. We are, as that graph shows, but the rate has not changed. How do most of them come in? They're coming in with plant material predominantly. These are data from uh, a review article. Insects, mites, diseases, but by and large, new pests are arriving, as we heard yesterday at uh, Killington, 
with exploration, they're coming back primarily with plant material. Now, they come in waves over in the States. Our first pest occurred, our first exotic pest in 1635, with the introduction of coddling moth. Of course, we had Johnny Appleseed that came and spewed apples all across our continent, but shortly behind this, we had coddling moth. The 1820s through 1860s basically were transporting pests along with ballast in the bottoms of ships. And this is where we got many of our pigeal creatures, beetles and things that live in the earth. We've had deliberate introductions, such as the introduction of gypsy moth in 1860. Then came a period of time, scale insects and aphids. And these were primarily coming in with plant material due to foreign exploration. We then had the era of foliage-feeding caterpillars, sawflies, and beetles, and now we're in a new era. And this is a bad era, because this is the era of the cambium and phloem feeders, the wood-boring insects that are lethal. Okay, so we're in a bad time right now. Again, it's hard to get biological data. It's easy to get economic data. And as you'll see... With the trade agreements increasing through the late 80s and 90s, our import balance has increased dramatically. And if we plot out the number of new introductions of the scolited borers, we can see the parallel here. About the time trade went this way, so did the importation of things like granulated ambrosia beetle. So this was a tipping point in my book. This is what I think, and frankly, I don't think we're going to reverse this trend, gang. I think this is business from here on out. Now, how many do we have? Well, in terms of biological invasions, okay, for example, you have about 20,000 native insects, and you only have a relatively small number of introduced, about 804%. Okay, certain other places, island communities, because they're fragile with many open niches, tend to have more. And certain places in the states, like California and Florida, are receiving new pests almost on a daily basis. So depending on where you're at, and you are buffered by the fact you are an island, this works in your favor, no question. But in many parts of the world, we're receiving new pests almost on a daily basis. Now, part of the situation, again, is through trade. Uh, we call it basically biotic imperialism. In other words, the trade will bring in these new pests. For example, in uh, Canada, we have 47 European species of ground beetles, very important predators that have come in from Eurasia. There have been none that have gone the other way, okay? Because the trade routes basically originate here on the uh, western coast of Europe and bring these things to the United States. As I said before, many of these things, our early arrivals, came in the ballast as ships loaded up with Belgian block or perhaps soil to come to the New World to trade. When they emptied that ballast, we began to accumulate pests. Why do most invaders come from Eurasia? Well, because of the similarity between climates, okay? The actual regimes of temperature, rainfall, day length, so this exchange across these bands, basically, from, from east to west, is a fairly common phenomenon in terms of how we get these new pests. And what are some of the characteristics of both the pest and the habitats in which they invade? Well, 
Insects with high reproductive rates, in other words, short generation times, pioneer species, because many of the habitats we work in, especially in the built environment, tend to be held in an early ecological stage. Long-lived high dispersal rates generalists, in other words, the ability to use several different species or families of plants are important to these guys, and high genetic variability. That's not always the case, but it certainly is useful. Characteristics of the invaded uh, habitat, similar to the climate, of course, for the invader, that's important. Absence of predators, and I'll talk about this. This is a key factor, particularly in our cities. Early successional stages, low diversity, and disturbed by human activity. So again, the built environment is particularly susceptible to invasion for these reasons. Some but not all of our worst pests are generalists. Uh, Asian longhorn beetle, gypsy moth in the States, granulate ambrosia beetle, polyphagous shot hole borer in California. This is one you guys don't want for sure. Spotted wing drosophila, brown marmorated stink bug. I'll talk about this case study. And then other guys like Japanese beetle, emerald ash borer, and hemlock woolly adelgid will be some of the case studies. So let's have a look at this. I'm going to start now with a real bad performer, the brown marmorated stink bug. First arrived in Allentown, Pennsylvania in the mid-1990s, now spread from coast to coast, border to border in the United States. In Asia, 106 hosts and 45 families. Our work in North America and Maryland here, 216 woody plant hosts in some 31 families. When it first arrived, we said, oh, it's just a stink bug. You know, let's not worry too much. The point was made here just a moment ago. When we have new, de new detections, we have to act very rapidly to prevent that spread border to border, coast to coast. So let's see what happened. This is a highly vagal pest. It moves from the overwintering sites in mountains, down from the mountaintop to the soybean field, but on the way back to the mountain where it would like to spend the winter, sometimes it makes a little detour into somebody's home. We'll talk about that for just a moment. They can lay from 400 to 600 eggs, each female. So this has enormous reproductive potential. They have a huge host list, apple, Asian pears, high risk, eggplant, vegetables, nectarines, red buds, peking lilac tree, tomatoes, moderate risk. There are fortunately some things that work well, Mrs. Sylvatica, Japanese maple. These are not particularly on the host list. We discovered, however, a phenomenon unknown before with stink bugs is they'll feed through the bark of the tree. So in autumn, they'll tap into phloem tissue to get the sugars and the proteins that are being mobilized. The problem here is we've got a dirty mouth part that can act again to the introduction of pathogens. We get bleeding wounds on the tree, which will attack stinging insects, something we've never seen before. We really don't know what the implication of this is yet. I talked about the stopover at the home site on the way back to the forest. This is what they'll leave on the siding. And once they get inside, there will be a lot of bugs in your home. This particular homeowner, after walking up into the attic and witnessing this, this is basically what they thought. 
Now, this particular gentleman, in a span between January 1st and June 18th in 2011, collected individually 26,000 stink bugs in his home. This is not unusual. This is the kind of problem we face. We now have a major pest of our landscape plants, fruit crops, vegetables, and then guess what? It's coming to your house for dinner. Guess who's coming to spend the winter? Now, some of the threats that I'd like to talk about briefly uh, in terms of resiliency, a substitution of exotic plants for native plants, the absence of biological diversity in the built environment, talk a little bit about climate change and its relationship to impervious surface. We won't have time to do the anthropogenic inputs uh, today, unfortunately. Now, as we shift from a native forest, let's say a remnant forest, to the urban forest, we see this shift from primarily native plants to many more exotic or non-native plants, an increase about 20%. Uh, the Owens famous uh, garden up in Leicester showed a very similar pattern. About 61% of the plants in her garden were non-native plants. Now, what does this mean? If we work it through, we can have a situation where we have native plants and native insect pests, okay? That's kind of boring. We're not going to go there today. We can have the next situation where we have exotic plants and exotic insects, and this results in what we call enemy release. We'll talk about enemy release. We can also have the exotic plant, native insect, and the... Um, native plant exotic insect, and this results in another phenomenon I want to speak about today, which you may not heard of, have heard of before. We call this defense-free space. So let's have a peek. Now, when we have exotic plants and we bring in the exotic pest, whether it's euonymus scale, boxwood leaf miner, or your oak processionary moth, when these arrive, they come without their baggage, Yes? The natural enemies, the predators, the parasites, the pathogens that control these populations back in the native realm are often left behind. How do we know it's enemy release? How do we know that these populations... Well, we have a great example with gypsy moth back in the U.S. Twice, we imported a fungal disease from Korea, from the place where gypsy moth was native. This turns the gypsy moth into a fungus garden, okay? And the defoliation by gypsy moth declined from about 8 million acres to somewhere less than 100,000 acres, with the result, the recoupling of that natural enemy with the pathogen that, maintained, that it evolved with back in Korea. So we know when we see these outbreaks that one of the mechanisms is what we call enemy release, Let's now talk about this other symmetrical relationship, exotic plants and native insect pests, and native plants and exotic insect pests. What does this mean? Well, we had our first big taste of this in the urban forest with, of course, Dutch elm disease. We imported the smaller European elm bark beetle, the Ophiostoma, on two occasions, and we killed 50 million trees in the U.S. Okay, so how does this happen? Why does it happen? 
Uh, Ted Wilson is going to give you a great talk on Emerald Dash Borer, and then Paul Shrewsby will talk about the management of this on Wednesday. So I'm not going to dwell on this. I just want to talk briefly about this as it pertains to the native plant exotic pest. It was imported again uh, prior to 2000. It's now killed hundreds of millions of ash trees in North America. Again, it had spread to the Midwestern part of our country, border to border, and also into Canada. I'll ask you a question now. When we have the situation of exotic pest, native and exotic plants, who lives and who dies? We have some native ashes. We have some exotic ashes. How many think the native North American ash survives? Oh, good. How many thinks that's the one that dies? Well, how many don't know then? Okay, well, let's find out. So the native ashes are Pennsylvania and our Americana. These are the ones that are going to die in the face of this. The exotic ash, the Mancherica, is the one that's going to live. This is what um, Mancherica looks like. It's a pretty good-looking ash tree, okay? Nice-looking plant. We know more now about emerald ash borer. We know that quite our blue ash in North America and the Mancherica are relative resistant. Our Americana is intermediate, but our Nigras and our Pennsylvanica are highly susceptible, are going to be killed almost without exception here. Let's flip it now. Now let's talk a little bit about a native insect pest, a close relative of emerald ash borer called the bronze birch borer. What happens then if we couple this particular North American pest with plants from other parts of the world. Who lives, who dies? Well, the North American ashes are going to be the winners, but our Eurasian, the, I'm sorry, birch trees, our North American birch trees are going to be the winners in this relationship. However, our Asian and European birches are going to be annihilated. So what does this all lead to? I'll lead to one more example. Uh, and please, uh, don't, bring, don't bring any birch trees uh, from North America in here uh, at risk of, uh, unless they're coming out of certified nurseries at risk of introducing this. Let's jump back to our friend, the brown marmorated stink bug. We seem the same kind of pattern here. If we look at host utilization, we find that the non-Asian hosts, this is a generalist, the non-Asian hosts are going to be much more susceptible to this particular pest, okay, than the North American ones, okay? So the non-Asian hosts, North American hosts, are going to maintain higher populations of both nymphs and adults. And if we look at a generic basis, this is going to be true for our maples, for our uh, pears, and also for our elm trees. We now have detailed about a dozen to 13 studies where we have this coevolutionary mismatch, basically, and fundamentally, what it breaks down here to, gang, I know there's a lot of emphasis and a lot of concern and a lot of desire to use only native plants. But please understand that if the plant lacks a coevolutionary history with a pest, which is now the case with the invasion biology I talked about before, our native plants are going to be more at risk because they have not co-evolved with these pests. They, the pest enters what we call defense-free space. 
the plants are not defended, we're going to have problems. And now I think this is one of our biggest threats to the native plants we do have. The other side of this, it builds a case that maybe one way to battle these invasive pests, of course, is to use non-native plants because they have the coevolutionary history. They have defenses against these realms of invaders. This is not popular in several places in the U.S. when I make this statement. Let's talk a little bit about the lack of biodiversity. In the U.S., in the eastern deciduous forest, we have a loss of biodiversity at all levels from the plant material as we go from agriculture to the built environment, especially the soil community. This can go two ways. This is not bad. That's the death knell, impervious surface. We have no biodiversity there. You see similar patterns, I think, over here, yeah? Your native forests become agricultural lands. These eventually become settled, and now we've got cities. All right, so we see a decline in the plant material. In the built environment, we can recover 70,000 plants per uh, kilometer squared, more than 100 different species. But in the built environment, plant densities decline dramatically with 30 species. I call it the diversity dilemma. Why is it a dilemma? Well, because when we lose the number of plant species, there's a direct relationship between the number of plants, a lot of scatter here, but the more plant species we have, the more primary consumers we have, the more herbivores. At the low end of the scale, we're in trouble. Okay, we start to lose species, and we see this with butterfly communities in places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, New York, Colorado. Species of butterflies, for example, that are now extirpated locally. The diversity dilemma. Does it move up through food chains, then, is the next question. The answer is yes, of course it does. We did a worldwide survey of ground beetles, important predators of things like caterpillars in the built environment. What we found, if it's to the left of this line, it means there was a significant difference. The number of species declines, not only the number of species, but the absolute abundance of those species. Fewer species, fewer predators in the built environment. And these particular critters are very important for killing caterpillars in the built environment, caterpillars in cities. Now, I thought you'd like to see a bug killing another bug. This is one of, uh, I have a YouTube channel, and my most watched YouTubes are bugs killing other bugs. I don't know what that says about human uh, behavior, but it's the truth. That's a large ground beetle eating a canker worm. We have ongoing canker worm outbreaks in cities like uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. There's been an outbreak there for two decades. I think your oak processionary moth, because of the lack of your large ground beetles in the built environment, that's part of the reason I'm guessing for the outbreak that you have south of London. Okay, what did we learn from these outbreak situations? Well, part of the lesson, I think, from Dutch elm disease was to diversify the urban landscape, yes? So we had things like the 10-20-30 rule. No more than 10% same species, no more than 20% same genus, no more than 30% same family. Well, how did we do? Do we do pretty good after Dutch elm disease? Well, I get around to the cities sometimes, and I did a survey of 13 North America cities, and this is what I found. We took a city that was once elm trees... And instead, we made it a city of maples and ashes. 
Now, wasn't that a good idea? The red bars are the host for Asian longhorn beetle. The green bars for emerald ash borer. So we simply turned one monoculture into a biculture, basically, and now we imported the two pests. In the U.S., about 50% of our trees are at risk to these two pests alone. Uh, before I leave it, diversify now or face catastrophic loss. So I'm telling my folks back on the other side, let's take a little breather on some maples, please, and, and ash. We don't need more of these right now. Maybe later. Okay, let's talk a little bit about climate change and impervious surface then. The world is warming. I want to talk a little bit about the hemlock woolly adelgid. Again, this is an Asian pest. This is its range in North America. And what we find is that at low temperatures, at low temperatures, mortality of the hemlock woolly adelgid is quite high. As it warms, mortality, overwintering mortality, declines dramatically. So the projection for our warming world, this is the current distribution of the uh, Canadian hemlock. What we think is that the projected mean temperatures are going to move further north dramatically to cover almost the entire range, the entire distribution of Canadian hemlock. So areas now protected in the north by cold temperatures will no longer be protected, and we expect to lose ever greater portions of our hemlock population. Important human vectors, Aedes aegypti, confined primarily to southern states with warming temperatures now overwintering successfully in places like Washington, D.C. The Asian tiger mosquito similarly expanding its range. Now, this problem is exacerbated by the heat island effect, yes? So in the suburbs, 30 kilometers from city center, it may be 10 degrees Celsius higher on, I'm sorry, cooler than in the city center because of the impervious surface to built environment. Well, what does this mean? Well, again... As we move from the woodland situation to city centers, we have much less evapotranspiration potential. Remember, evapotranspiration cools not only the tree, but it cools the city as well. I think one of the underappreciated aspects of the built urban environment is the cooling effect that trees have on cities. However, when we put buildings next to these things, they are going to reflect heat, they're going to hold heat, and the insects are going to benefit dramatically by virtue of this. Some great work being done down at North Carolina State University by Steve Frank and his folks have found that scale insects, you have some very nasty soft-scale insects uh, on your, um, your sweet... Uh, the conkers. Thank you. Yes, thank <laughs> you. Sweet chestnuts. Uh, and horse chestnuts, too. Horse chestnut scale, thanks. Thanks, Jeremy. Horse chestnut scale. Uh, again, some great work done in your part of the world found, but also in, uh, in our part of the world found, that when 
These uh, soft-scale insects are found in the city. They are simply going to survive better, and the females are going to quadruple the number of eggs they lay. So again, the warm environment is going to benefit dramatically many different kinds of pest species. Two-spotted spider mite. Why does it always outbreak in a city and not so much in the, uh, in the more residential, the more diverse habitat? Well, it's not a natural enemy effect. In the built environment, where it's a bit warmer, well, let's start with the, the temperature dependence first. Oops, let me back that out. At 15 degrees centigrade, it's going to take about 30 days for those spider mites to complete a generation. However, when we bump the temperature up to 30 degrees centigrade, they're going to do this basically in seven days. That means in the same amount of time, you're going to have five times as many generations, yeah? So this is why when we have plants planted in full sun, plants in the city, your lime trees are going to be the same way the mites that are on these things, we're simply going to have much higher populations of spider mites due to the warmth of the warmer world, but also the added effect of the heat islands in the cities. Some great work done by Hartmut Balder and his folks over in uh, Germany found that simply walking across the street, walking across the big boulevard in Berlin, if you walk to the sunny side of the street, you might have as many as 10 times the population of spider mites as the same lime trees on the other side of the boulevard that are cooled in the shade. Okay, simple effects, but again, this is going to translate into higher populations. How are we doing time-wise? I've got five minutes remaining. Well, this is going to be a miracle. Uh, I usually don't finish on time, but I think it may actually happen today. Okay. Oftentimes, heat is accompanied by drought. Yes? What does that mean? Well, again, water deficits, compacted soil, these are all going to mitigate against the defenses, the natural defenses of our trees in the built environment. And who's going to benefit? Well, a zero means that you stress the tree, the, the bug doesn't care. Uh, plus means you stress the tree and the bug is going to benefit. Minus means you stress the tree and the bug is going to be harmed. And the ones that worry me again the most are our borers. These are egregious, they can kill trees. Those are the big winners. Okay, what are some of the consequences of this then? Well, in plots, uh, again, in Michigan, emerald ash borer plots, almost 100% mortality of our ash trees in those plots and with very little recruitment. Once the ash are gone, the ash seedling stock is gone, and we simply don't have recruitment back into those habitats. Devastating. There are many species associated with fraxinus in our country. 44 species are intimately, they must have an ash tree. They're at risk. It's not just the tree. This then cascades up the food web. So 44 additional species are going down the toilet when ash disappears. Economic expenditures, you guys, collectively about $330 billion annually. Oops. Emerald ash borer is a $1.3 billion pest annually in the United States. $1.3 billion. Our sucking insects, including hemlock woolly adelgid, several hundred million dollars every year. 
Some of our defoliators like Gypsy Moth, again, several hundred million dollars annually try to remediate, detect, and solve these problems once they're introduced. Now, how do these things get here? We've talked about the rate due to economies. We've had some very bizarre things. We've had these things called, uh, uh, what were these things called? Um, societies. I don't know the name of these societies, but we had these folks that, that wanted to do things like introduce all the birds that Shakespeare mentioned in his writings. And this gentleman, Eugene Shefflin, imported things like starlings, released a hundred of them. So sometimes we get quirky things, that quirky ways that they get here. How have they been used in bioterrorism or terrorism? Well, in World War II, there was the mass production of Colorado potato beetle with the hope of infesting enemy crops. Disease-carrying fleas were sprayed from airplanes and bombs packed with flies with a slurry of cholera killed 440,000 people in Asia. Our own facilities during the Cold War were geared up to produce 100 million yellow fever infected mosquitoes. We actually had a list of cities these would be released on. And we actually tested them out by releasing uninfected mosquitoes over several cities, uh, unbeknownst to those folks, to see, to see if this would work. One last example, eucalypts in California. Now, eucalypts are not native, and there are a lot of folks there that uh, don't really like them. Okay? They think they're intrusive. They think they rob water. They think they degrade the natural habitat. That place is a desert, by the way. There are very few things that grow in California. The accumulation of pests on eucalyptus, random process or smoking gun. Some of my colleagues, eucalypts were first introduced in the 1850s. They went through a century with no pests. Then they got two pests, and then it went exponential. Now, the belief is there are actually people that don't like eucalyptus so much, and what they're doing is they're bringing back the pest complex to try to rid California of eucalypts. The only two species that we're finding these pests are are the ones on the invasive species list. It's not a random collection of eucalypts, just the one on the invasive species list. So what can we do? Well, I think we need to increase the biodiversity without question. In our built environment, we have to be thinking broadly. Everything from genetics to ecosystems, it must be more diverse. Diversity is Mother Nature's buffer against environmental change. Don't ever forget this. This is the most important thing. Use native and non-native plants to increase ecosystem service. It doesn't matter where a plant comes from. That's not the important piece. What the question we should ask is not where plants come from. It's what ecological service they provide to the environment we put them in. So let's forget about where things come from. Let's ask the question, how can they help the environment we're trying to grow them in? Reduce threats of importation, tools, education. We need early detection and rapid mitigation to prevent the spread. Climate change, time's up. Fair enough. 
Got to control that and the last three things. And finally, I want to say thanks so much for having me back. I hope you've enjoyed this and perhaps stimulated some thoughts. So thank you again. Thanks, Tony. After his presentation, we spoke to Mike in this Talking Trees interview to find out more about his thoughts on trees and tree pests and diseases. Tell us a bit about how you got into arboriculture. Well, one of my earliest memories when I was a kid, when I was about three years old, I had two other brothers and we used to go swimming in a mill pond. And my brother, older brothers would jump into that mill pond and I followed them right in. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. And I remember sinking down beneath the water and understanding that I had to get up there somehow, back to the air, and I, I didn't know how to do it. I woke up, I was sitting in a chair, my father had fished me out of there, and the first thing I smelled was a spruce tree. And I said, Every time I smell a Colorado blue spruce, I say, ah, you're a lifesaver. What role do trees play in modern society? You know, trees give us everything. I think, you know, they give us oxygen. So what I do is I go out and hug a tree every day. I teach biology to non-majors and I explain to them if it weren't for trees, they simply wouldn't be here. So go out and hug a tree every day. And uh, they're just magnificent uh, organisms. We owe everything to trees. It all starts with the primary producers. And as far as I'm concerned, trees are the, the kings and queens of the primary producers. So we just have to admire these things. Are we overreacting to the threat from pests and diseases? Well, they certainly are part of the natural evolutionary process. The problem right now is the rate at which it's happening. These things happen in what we call evolutionary time. These are eons, these are millennia, those are the time frames. What we've done now is we've compressed down that evolutionary time scale into an ecological time scale. So what this means is that where plants once had the opportunity to evolve and adapt to that new pest, that new insect or disease that was coming, we've compressed it so quickly by putting these things together through globalization, global trade, we've now created a global biota in a very short time frame. And frankly, these associations that maybe take eons to evolve are happening in the period of years. So this is why the systems are a little bit out of control right now and why we're seeing the, the wild scale loss of trees in North America over here in Eurasia as we put these new organisms that have never had a chance to be together, throwing them together very quickly without the time to make that, that evolutionary adjustment. So it's really the time frame, the compression. This is also compounded, of course, by the very, very rapid warming of our world. This creates new opportunities for these invasive pests. Generation times of insects and diseases compress, ranges change. And in the built environment, the urbanized environment where we have heat sinks, that problem of global warming is simply exacerbated. So all the problems associated with those factors uh, are magnified. So the rate of invasion, the shrinking of that evolutionary time scale, the rapid warming of the world, and this process of urbanization that's taken place all over our planet they're basically conspiring now in a very short time and creating an experiment we've never seen before in the history of the planet. How can we protect our urban trees from pests and disease? Simply the best thing I think we can do, number one, 
we got to create more green space. Okay, so that means city planners now have to allocate space within the built environment for more trees, shrubs, herbaceous plants. The other key to this is diversification. Too long historically we've depended on single species, the Dutch elm disease problem with too many elm trees planted worldwide. Here in the States, the replacement of elm trees with ash trees and with maple trees, the host of emerald ash borer, Asian longhorn beetle, we simply haven't learned the lesson yet of biodiversity and how important it is. Biodiversity is mother nature's buffer in an uncertain world. So we need more diversity, we need more green spaces in our city, and we've got to cut down on that impervious surface whenever we can. So that means when we're planning hardscape, we should be thinking pervious surface, not impervious surface, and we need to take advantage of that wonderful resource up on top of those buildings. We need more green roofs. We need to make every possible inch green to help fix carbon and reverse that problem associated with climate change. How do you think trees can be pushed higher on the global agenda? The planet's gonna go in a very dark way without trees. So what we have to do is we have to help society understand the most important services that trees provide and find ways to preserve these ecosystem services and make the entire forest, not only the, the natural forest, but that urban forest more sustainable. I think the key here to get trees on the screen is education. What we need to do is we need to get a grassroots effort we need to help people, the average citizen, understand the contribution that trees make to their environment, to their way of life, to the quality of life, everything from aesthetic beauty, the increasing of property values, the key role that the green infrastructure plays in fixing carbon and reversing climate change, and fundamentally, the health benefits of having trees. We know when we have green in cities, that people are generally happier, crime rates go down, and people that are ill in a hospital, if they can look at green trees rather than the side of a building, they're gonna get, they're going to get healthier quicker, they're gonna get well quicker. We found in cities that have been defoliated and have lost their tree cover due to emerald ash borer, rates of things like heart disease are actually increasing. So this intimate association that we have with plants and understand that we share about 50% of our genes with plants. We're actually half a plant. We, we have an evolutionary history with these organisms, and I think we need to understand that they help make our world go around. So getting that information out to the general public is probably the most important thing we can do as arborists. I think people are finally understanding. I think some of the environmental crises we've, we've faced here with things like your chelera here in the UK with our emerald ash borer have really opened people's eyes to the importance of trees and it's provided real opportunity for educating and getting people on board with this. So even though these disasters are, are very difficult and disruptive, the other piece of this puzzle, I think we finally have the attention of people and, and they can understand what the value and importance of these, these wonderful organisms uh, really are. Well, I was out there hugging some maples earlier today, and a little bit later on, I'm going to go hug that giant you. Might get some interesting looks around here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, trees. You know, what's better, than, what's better than hanging out with a tree, huh?
Well, maybe hanging out with a friend, you know, or something like that, or a partner is good, but you know, hanging out with the trees is pretty good too. Just makes you feel better being out in the trees, doesn't it? it really does. I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think everybody's with that. 